Hi guys, thanks for listening to this podcast series, Doing Death, where I, Amanda Blaney, talk to people about death and dying, life and love, and what can be learned from death so that we can embrace a happier and more fulfilling life. Today we talk to Frank Ostaseski, the pioneer in end-of-life care. And he is also the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. It's the first Buddhist hospice in the US. And more recently, he has become the director of the Meta Institute. Here he talks about his book, The Five Invitations, and what death has taught him about life. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Frank, today. Very happy to be with you, Amanda. Good. Um, I wanted to just dive straight in and talk to you about your book. And in your book, The Five Invitations, you write about what you have learned from the dying and how we can learn to live fully. I just wanted to ask you about the waking up you describe in the dying process and how that can relate to us now. Well, I think that we tend to see dying mostly as a terrible tragedy, um, that we think of it as only an end and uh, a terrible one at that oftentimes. But I think actually dying has about it certain conditions which are conducive to actually our waking up, our a deep awakening in our life. You know, all the ways we've defined ourselves. I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a Buddhist teacher, I'm a podcaster. All of these identities will be stripped away by illness or gracefully given up, mm. but they will all go. And then we come down to something far more essential and fundamental in our lives, I think. Um, much more than the small separate self we've taken ourselves to be. And so I, I think the dying process uh, illuminates that possibility. But of course, we need not wait to the time of our dying to do that work. Yes. Yes, and I think that's, that's the key with doing death. It's, it's about saying we need to look face, you know, de- death in the face in order to evaluate where we are with our life. And people don't do that enough. Well, I think it's changing, actually. Yeah, I think it's changing quite well. I think that we're seeing many more books on the shelves, not only mine, but many others, and good books at that. I think people are beginning to have these kinds of conversations. Your show is an example of that. Um, the Death Cafe movement, of course, is massive. Uh, John's work was remarkable. Um, uh, the Death Over Dinner program that uh, I'm an advisor to in the States. It's a brilliant dinner. You can find that on, on the yes, internet. Yes, I'm aware of that. That's that, terrific. Yeah. So I think there's many more of these kinds of discussions that are going on. I think people are hungry, actually, for yeah. the discussion. I just think they're a bit frightened about it. Yes. And uh, they need someone to talk to, like yourself, maybe who's not so frightened about it. So I think um, it's really things are really improving around this. I think our generation, the baby boomer generation, my generation, I should say, is... Um, actually leading the way in this. And, um, and I think uh, their children uh, are beginning to have really honest conversations with their parents about this experience. Yes, I, I agree. And my children definitely talk more about death. And they ask us daily about, you know, what happens if so-and-so dies, what happens at the funeral. And we talk to them very openly, but, you know, we keep it quite normal. And so my children have a very open dialogue with death. And... They don't seem to be scared about it, which is great, but they seem to acknowledge that it's part of our life, which is what I want, really. Um, I mean, you know, there's a part of us, Amanda, that will always be scared. Yeah. You know, the the sense of self, the egoic structures that we developed, they develop actually as a kind of imitation that we, we see in our parents or in others 
what we think we need to be as a human being, and then we mirror that in some way. But actually, it's a kind of construction that is substituting for a, a deeper connection to a more essential self. And so this sense of self, this ego self, will always be afraid. Yeah, It's not going to grow up and suddenly not be afraid of death. That's no, not what gets no. awakened. So I think that uh, what we have to do is find some aspect of ourself that's bigger than, more than, this, um, this uh, limited belief system that we're walking around with. Yeah? Mm. And then I think that can become our default. You know, It's like I was saying to someone today, when we know that we're afraid, the part of us that knows we're afraid is not afraid. No. And we can orient to that as opposed to the fear. We get to have a choice, actually. But if we don't examine the fear, if we don't take a look, we'll never know that we have a choice. We'll just be pushed around by it. Mm. Um, in the book, this comes up quite a lot, which I'm quite fascinated with. And it, I do get asked about this. I, I volunteer in a local hospice. And it's, it's very much about the breath. And how can we work with the breath when someone's dying? I find that quite an interest, quite interesting when you talked about it in the book and mm. how you use it with your children as well, that you breathe in the rhythm that they're breathing in when they're dying. And I just wanted to ask you about that and how that can be helpful Well, I think uh, as we come close to the end of our lives, much like birth, breath is the thing that's most present yeah. in the room, right? And so um, it, because it's there, because it's the most evident experience, then it becomes that which we work with. Mm. Um, you know, at the end of every exhale, there's a gap before the next inhale. How do we meet that gap, I wonder? You know, each of us meet it differently. Uh, that seems to me to be a place of fear or faith. That, you know, are we reaching for the next breath? We actually trust it'll come, you know? Or do we get, uh, and so out of fear, we start reaching for the next breath? Or do we actually have some trust, some confidence? That, yeah. Oh, the next breath will come. So that's a bit of a microcosm for our whole life, in a way. Oftentimes when I'm with people who are dying, I simply breathe with them. I don't guide them. I don't show them a particular way to breathe. But as they breathe in, I breathe in. As they breathe out, I breathe out. And what I find is this is a way of attuning quite precisely, uh, very tenderly, actually, to what's happening for the other person. Sometimes it can be difficult because there are long gaps in the breath and, or someone's breath is faster than ours. But, you know, we can make an adjustment. We can follow every other breath or, you know, we can take two breaths so there one as the case may be. But I think the point is to try and harmonize, to yeah. attune with the other. And it's the way I used to put my son to sleep at nights. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of wish I'd thought for that when I was with my babies. I'd, lo I'd love to have done that with them. Yeah. I remember reading that in the book as well. Um, so the other thing that you mentioned in, in the chapter, Don't Wait, is you discuss living in the present moment. And when that comes up in talks that I do, people say, how, how do you do that more? You know, where, you know, where is that moment? Yeah. And you talk in your book about the past and the future as being part of the present. It's not it's right. not the past there and the future's over there, that it's very much Yeah, I, I think when we, continual. you know, this kind of cliche that we have about living in the present moment, it's, where, where is it? Is it a nanosecond, you know, between the past and the future? And boy, there, it's gone now, you know, it was just here and now we missed it. So I think we have to think of the present moment as inclusive of the past and, and the future. When you remember your mother in the present, she's present with you. Yeah. Yeah? When you think about your children growing older in the future, they're present with you. 
in a way. So the present moment includes past and future, actually. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so to be present means to be available to the moment as it's arising, just as it's arising, just the way in which it's arising, yeah. as is, we say, you know, as is. I think there's a distinction between being present, which is kind of being available, and presence. Presence is a different experience. It's a fundamentally different experience. Um, it's a quality of our being that has a certain kind of palpable quality to it. We yeah. feel when the presence is there. It feels almost like a mutable medium, like a kind of membrane almost. And that presence can be filled with compassion, with intelligence, with strength. Other qualities can emerge within that presence and um, function as a kind of guidance for us in our life. Yeah. So presence is a quality of being, but I describe it as wetness to water. You know, we can't really feel water if we have gloves on. Yeah. So we have to really kind of clear out in a way, open the mind, open the body and heart so that we can actually be a vehicle for, if you will, or an open vehicle for this kind of emerging of presence in our lives. That's beautiful. Um, I wanted to talk to you about forgiveness as well. And I loved that you wrote in your book that forgiveness is for the forgiver. And it's something that I've had to deal with a lot in my life from my childhood forgiving my, you know, my parents in a way for the childhood that we had and, um, and the process of letting things go. And I think, you know, how, what can we learn through that forgiveness? Well, I think there's a lot of things written about forgiveness and there's a lot of misunderstanding about forgiveness, I mm. think. Um, and I think it's first useful to recognize and make the distinction between forgiveness and forgetting. Yeah. I think people are concerned that if they forgive, they will forget and whatever harm that's been done to them or perhaps whatever harm they've done to others will somehow repeat itself. Well, that somehow forgiveness is about condoning bad actions, unskillful actions. And I don't think it's either of those things. I think forgiveness is the willingness to touch what hurts with some degree of mercy yeah. and some degree of tenderness, you know? So in this way, I think that forgiveness is always about self-forgiveness. I think in the end, it's this way. We, we go through the ritual of forgiving another or being asking for forgiveness from another, and those are useful. But in the end, the hardest thing and the most, fund most essential thing is self-forgiveness. Yeah. You know, to stop keeping ourselves out of our own hearts. Yeah. Um, it's not easy, though, is it? <laughs> uh, no, it's not easy. But, you know, I don't think life is meant to be that way. You know, I think that we, we, we learn a lot from uh, turning toward what hurts. Yeah. I think that's the place that compassion really emerges, you know, by turning toward our suffering. I think that's where the healing is always found. So forgiveness has many prohibitions, you know. Um, uh, you know, we all agree that forgiveness is useful in being free. And yet... If that was the case, why don't we all practice it? Yeah. Well, we don't. We, we, we want the people to be punished. We want retribution. We want the other person to hurt as much as we hurt. So these are all things that we have to confront in the process of forgiveness. So I'm suspicious of forgiveness that comes too quickly. Mm. I think it, it's a process. And I, usually it often involves rage or anger or um, self, <laughs> you know, being self-incriminating, yeah. um, all of those things. So, 
you know, it's a slow, gradual process. It's not a greeting card, you know, that we get in the shop that says, I forgive everything's okay now, right? Yeah. Uh, I think it's this long, not necessarily long, but it's a deliberate process. Yeah, you're, you're right there. It's definitely, it is definitely a long journey. Can be. Yeah, well, yes, can be. it can be. Um, so you were talking about how that your generation is infiltrating, talking about death and looking at things like forgiveness. But what if people get to the end of their life and they don't get to that point, they don't look at their own regrets, you know, their life issues, and they don't want to resolve them. But how, how, how best can we serve them if they're in a state where, not, not in denial, but just, you know, not at that point where they're ready to let go of? Well, you know, I, I think a lot of us go through our lives in a rather habitual way. You know, we just go from day to day and um, do the best we can in some ways. Um, but I think what happens in this is that we touch a kind of discontent, you know, that comes from living life on automatic pilot, you know. And so, you know, I think when we enter into a discussion with people, for example, our aging parents, you know, and we're honest with them, you know, and we don't have a should or an idea about how they ought to behave how they ought, what conversations they ought to have with us. But we approach them, for example, and we say, you know, mom, dad, I'm a little scared. I see you getting older, you know, and I noticed you tripped over the curb the other day, you know, or maybe you tripped over your words. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to be able to be available to you. I want my, I love you and I want to be available to you. And so I need to know, what do you want? You know, and uh, how can I be of support to you? And, and maybe, you know, if we had a discussion about this, I wouldn't be so scared. Yeah. And I think that's a really good way to enter into it. Most of our parents love us and, and really want to support their children, even their grown children. And so um, I think if we present our side of it, you know, we, we talk about our fear, then I think they're more likely to enter into the conversation as opposed to some kind of demand on them that they somehow come to, mm. you know, some, you know, confrontation with death i don't think that's so helpful yeah yes there's a lot of sense in that you know just starting the conversation a bit earlier yeah. from our point of view exactly yeah 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 i mean your parents have been there you know all along you know and doing the best they could you know trying to guide you trying to make life better for you than maybe it was for them that's always part of every, every parent's hope you know that we don't always accomplish it but that's every parent's hope yeah. And so I think uh, if we come to them with some degree of self-revelation, you know, in other words, being willing to acknowledge what's difficult for us, they might just very well uh, enter the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, just speaking for the baby boomers, you know, we like uh, our coffee in 17 different ways, you know, lattes and macchiatos and decaf lattes and all of that. We're going to want a lot of choices around the way in which we die. Yeah. You know, and so that's the, that's a conversation that we need to start now, and uh, and it's a foolish idea to wait until the end of our life to imagine that then we will have the strength of body, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime. This is a foolish gamble. Mm, yeah. Absolutely, and when you start thinking about it, you realize actually it is it is a gamble. Yeah, it know. is, and it, and it's not worth it. You no. know, we're gambling with far too much, mm. our whole lives, really. Yeah. yeah, it's quite scary, isn't it? <laughs> when you think about it, you know. Well, it's sobering. Yeah, I think it's sobering. Yeah. I think it makes us really take, you know, pull up the reins and stop and say, okay, 
all right, this is something I've been postponing. But uh, an hour later, here it comes. You know? I mean, we have this term, later. And it's like a comfortable cushion between mm. us and death, you know. Later. I'm, I'm young now. I'll think about death later. But I think it's a, an illusion, actually. Because change isn't later. Change is now. And uh, if we want to understand something about death, it means we have to look at the nature of constant change, the nature of impermanence, the fact that everything is ephemeral. Okay, so um, I was going to talk to you about something that you mentioned in the book where in the chapter, Welcome Everything, and this sort of resistance to pain equals suffering and not pushing away our own pain. And it made me laugh when I read No Pain, No Gain. Um, how can we tune into our own suffering to be more compassionate? Well, I, I think that first we need to make the distinction between pain and suffering. And pain, often we could think about it as physical pain, but also emotional, psychological, spiritual pain as well. And suffering is really our relationship to pain, you know, to the stimulus, in a way, how we relate to the experience. Do we only meet it with resistance, for example? This exacerbates the pain, and it makes for unnecessary suffering in our lives. It's natural that none of us want to be physical suffering. I don't like physical pain. It hurts. I don't want to be around it that much in my own I don't want it so much in my life. But the reality is life includes this sometimes. So we could do that we should do the best we can, for example, in working with people at the end of life to manage their pain, address their symptoms, yeah. But also we have to help them understand their relationship to the experience. Cicely Saunders, you know, a founder of modern day hospice movement, used to speak about total pain, total pain. The experience of that includes not only the physical experience, but also the social, um, familiar, and even economic factors that contribute to our, our, our pain. So um, the way in which we come to understand suffering is by going toward it. Yeah. And of course, this is against the grain. You know, we, we think that we should do everything we can to avoid suffering. And um, that's good if you can do it, but life is full of suffering. Mm. And I think that if we turn toward it, we can understand something about it. Then it doesn't have us in such a stranglehold. Yeah. We can't avoid, we, we can't avoid it. We? Well, I think that suffering is part of life. Yeah. It's just part of life. I mean, I, I think I shared with you a story when I had a heart attack a few years ago. And a very, they had a triple bypass surgery. It was a big deal. And I was kind of a wreck. I was felt weak and dependent, a bit depressed. A very famous Tibetan teacher called me up to wish me well. And I thought, perhaps he'll give me some esoteric practice that will save me from this experience of myself. And so I asked him, you know, he'd had a heart condition. So I asked him, I said, you know, how'd you deal with it? All the drama, all the confusion. And he was a pause on the other end of the line. And then he said, well, I think it's good to have a heart. And if you have a heart, well, you should expect it will have suffering. And he told me to rest a lot more, and then he hung up. And I thought, that's it? No esoteric practice? But actually, it was really, when I thought about it, it was really wise what he said, you know? If we have a human life, we should expect there'll be suffering. I mean, how is it? Is it different for anybody? No. Yeah. So the willingness to meet that suffering, to learn from it, to touch it with compassion... Uh, to allow it to um, develop our empathy for other people's suffering, 
um, I think these are all essential elements in the in the healing of pain and the healing of suffering. Yeah. Hmm. I wanted to ask about rituals in dying, and one of the rituals that you mention a few times in the book is washing the washing of the body. Mm. And I wanted to ask you how that ritual helps the families that wash the bodies, because you know you're. A lot of people in the UK that I've spoken to always say, no, no, I don't want to see the body. I don't want to see the body. But mm. I was curious to see what that process Well, when I was, was running the Zen Hospice Project, I don't run it anymore, but well, I was there for close to 20 years. And it was a common practice for us to bathe the body of someone who died. And we always offered it, um, invited the family to be part of that experience. And usually they had a response much like the one you just described. No, 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 I don't want to be near that. I want to remember them as they were well, you know. But when people stay with someone who's dying, in a, in a sense, vigil with them, you know, go through this process with them, sometimes right up and through the last breath, you know, then the most natural thing actually is to bathe them. Mm. You know, that it's not so, uh, such a strange and foreign idea, that it's a way of kind of bringing some completion. I, I don't have any dogma that people, sh everyone should bathe the body. I don't think this is necessary. But... What I've noticed is that oftentimes when people have been part of that bathing process, their grief changes. The way in which they meet their grief is different. You know, one of the challenges of, of a loss, a severe loss, is it's hard to make it real. Mm. You know, when someone we love dies, it, it's a little bit like, it's a bit of a dream. And when we're there, you know, when we're bathing the body, it's real. And we feel it. And we... We feel the reality of death, but also we feel the tenderness and the love that we have for this family member or friend who's died, you know. And there's a great sense of completion in that. And I think then there's also the sense memory of actually knowing, oh, this is death. This is death. And that can help us enormously later when we're going through the process of bereavement and grief. Um, there was a woman who died in our hospice. She was a wonderful adventurer actually and um, the day that she died her sister and dearest friend just happened to step down the hall to use the toilet and while she was there in the bathroom her sister died and when she came back in the room I said uh, I'm sorry your sister's died and she said no she hasn't now we could say this is denial and some kind of you know psychosis but I didn't see it that way. So I said, well, when was she most alive? And she said, oh, when she was a youngster, she was a character. You know, she was a spelunker in caves and a great, great adventurer. And then she became this editor for a, an alternative magazine. And, uh, and, that, and then she started doing her own writing. And she began to really tell me the story of her sister. And uh, then she said, remember last week, Frank, she, she fell and broke her arm and we had to bring her to the emergency room together? I said, yeah, I remember, I remember. And it was her way to get current with the situation. And then after she'd kind of gone through this process, she said to me, now we could bathe her. Now we could bathe her. And so together we, we washed her body, you know, and, mm, and dressed beautiful. her. So I, I think that this, this idea of denial is a bit misunderstood. I think sometimes it's just a way of our saying, I'm not ready for that yet. I'm not ready for that yet. Something else has to happen in between. In this case, she had to kind of catch up in a way. 
because the dying process had moved too fast for her. Yeah. Wow. Um, so my final question to you is, um, my, <laughs> my husband always says, people talk the talk, but do they walk the walk? And what I wanted to ask you was, you know, what are the challenges for you living in your life with your invitations in mind? Um, do you feel that you live what you write about? Do you write about because you live that? You know, what, what challenges do you have? Well, respect. you know, the, the five invitations were initially five guidelines that we used to, uh, in the hospice to help caregivers know how to be with folks who are dying. And then we understood that they had a relevance for the rest of us in living a more meaningful and purposeful life, you know. Um, I, I think of them as deep, bottomless practices mm. that we are continually living into in order to discover. You know, they're not just bolted points that we stick on a refrigerator. I think they're... They're, and they're all interrelated, you know. So as we practice one, it sort of brings rise to the other. Um, the five, by the way, just for your listeners, are don't wait. Welcome everything. Push away nothing. The third is um, bring your whole self to the experience. The fourth, find a place of rest in the middle of things. And the fifth, cultivate don't know mind. Those are the five. And so I've been working with these for 30 years and I keep discovering new things. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty honest about my own humanity when I'm working with people who are dying. Otherwise, I'm not a very trustworthy presence. Yeah. I've got to be real for them, with them rather. And uh, that's why I become a more, a real compassionate refuge. When I was in the midst of working in the AIDS epidemic, which was, San Francisco was ground zero for the AIDS epidemic. You know, sometimes we had 20, 30, 40 people die in a week. And it was quite devastating. And I did three things. The first thing is I got onto my meditation cushion, which was a way I stabilized and metabolized in a way, integrated the losses that I had been experiencing. The second is that I went to a body worker. And uh, once a week, he would, I would come into his office and instead of him doing a traditional massage, he'd say, where today, Frank? And I'd point to my shoulder and he'd put his hand on my shoulder and I'd just weep for about an hour. And there was something about his, his contact with me, his the relational quality to that and that touch that enabled me to really release my grief and tears and, and to let these losses move through me. And then the third thing I did is I, I used to sneak into the, or not sneak in, I used to go to the one of the other hospitals to a maternity ward where I knew a lot of the nurses. And there they were treating babies who'd been born to addicted mothers. And before I'd go home to my own four children, I would sometimes sit in a rocking chair and rock these young infants. Yeah. And what I found was I was able to soothe them. And there was something about being able to soothe their suffering that was enormously helpful when, at other times when uh, someone was dying of AIDS or of some other illness and I couldn't soothe their suffering. Yeah. So it was a way for me to stay balanced mm. in the course of the work. So I think, to be honest, I'm a work in progress, you know. <laughs> we, uh, we all are. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm discovering day to day, you know. But um, I had good teachers, you yeah. know. I've been with the, at the bedside of a few thousand people, and they're really my teachers. Okay. And um, anything I have of value to offer the world, uh, they taught me. Oh, absolutely. And um, I really enjoyed reading your book. I've read it twice 
twice and I've reread the chapters quite a few times as well, just so I can really understand. Yeah. It's a lot to take in. But once you start that conversation, like you say, it's, you know, it really starts opening up lots of other feelings and emotions and discoveries about yourself yes. and discoveries about your life and how you want to then lead your life to the best that you, you know that you can yeah i mean it's not really a book about death and dying no it's not really a book about how do you care for folks who are dying although there's some pointers in there i think it's more what do you learn from death yeah that can show us how to yeah. live our life fully and and completely um that was really the purpose of it because I'd been with so many people who'd come to their death in fear and regret, you know, and I thought we should do something about that. And, and I think the best thing we can do about that is have the conversation now. Yeah. You know, let's really be honest with each other about this conversation. What scares the hell out of us? And also, what is it that really supports us? What's a reliable refuge for each of us? So um, I hope it's of some small support. You know, the book is also available in audio. Okay. And yes, those people that, that are, yeah, those people that are enjoying just listening to the I sound of my I wish I'd known voice, that. <laughs> um, it's kind of nice, you know, because then it feels more like a kind of intimate conversation as opposed to. Are you are you talking? In, yes, in, I'm doing it. Oh, I do the recording. Frank, that's I do the recording. Wonderful. So, um, so that's another uh, another possibility for people. Okay. Um, I think it's the kind of book that you keep around for a while. Absolutely, yeah. I don't think it's one of these, you know, flash-in-the-pants books. I think it, my sense is it's going to be around. It's got a long tail, so, so to speak. It's going to be around for a long time. Well, thank you so much for writing it yeah. and having it available to people because it really is a moving and a real, a real eye-opener, actually, and a, a game-changer, I think. Well, thank for you sure. for doing this. Thank you for thank doing you. this podcast. It's a great service to people and may it, you know, go far and wide and, and, and really touch the lives of many, many people who are, as I say earlier, are hungry for this conversation. Yeah, def definitely. And I've discovered this more and more through conversations and death. I run a death cafe as well. And I can't stop people talking at the end of it. It's like, okay, we need to leave now. But people come out and say it's the best night they've had in ages. Yeah. <laughs> they really do. So, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, you can check out more about the book and Frank's work on www.fiveinvitations.com. Is that right? And you have another website as well. Uh, www.metainstitute.org. And that's meta, M-E-T-T-A, institute.org. Both of those have listings of where I'm speaking and um, the, the Five Invitation site has many, many resources, articles, videos, other kinds of things to help people through their bereavement process, to help them if they're caring for a loved one, or just for people who are really wanting to take a look at death as a way of stepping more fully into life. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Very happy to be with All you. Right, thanks, thanks for inviting Frank. me. Frank. Take care. And if you'd like to find out more about Frank's book, The Five Invitations, you can have a look on his website, www.thefiveinvitations.com. And if you liked this podcast, please go onto iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcast, and review us and star us so that other people can find us and have a listen. Thank you. Thank you.